Hello everyone, you're listening to America Meditating Radio. We collect wisdom, inspire each other, and empower hearts on demand 24-7. I'm Sister Jenna, host of the syndicated America Meditating Radio. Join us as we talk one-on-one with leading experts who answer life's most compelling questions. Because in a world of uncertainty, we need answers right here, right now. America Meditating Radio, a show for everyone to learn more about this amazing thing called life. Flow is in my 
everyone. Welcome to America Meditating Radio. I am your host, Sister Jenna. That was Kristen Hoffman. The roses opening up all over again as we get this time to incubate and to elevate. It's my pure wish that everyone is okay and sadness or disappointment or a sense of loss or confusion has not settled in. It can pass by, but don't let it settle in. How do I not let it settle in? keep thinking about the current state of the world and to keep thinking about the current state of uncertainty. But instead, I can start to visualize how I wish to exit this particular state. How do I wish to move post all of this pandemic and insanity that's going on all over the world? So that's the kind of a work that we have to do in ourselves. Life has a way of dealing us certain cards and we're not always open to playing the game. Sometimes you look at it, it doesn't seem fair. And sometimes you look at others and you go, it's just not happening to them, but why is it happening to me? But we all come to realize that we all have our own stories to tell and our own stories to play out. And everything that's happening to us really is a gift in helping us to evolve in ways that we needed to, unknown to us. These were ways that we needed to involve. And what do you think it would feel like? Think about Prince Harry, married Meghan Markle, who was an actress in Hollywood. And in his marrying of her, she became a princess. But then a year later, he left the dynasty and is now looked upon as an ordinary citizen. Now, Meghan was always accustomed to live an ordinary citizen life, but Harry wasn't. And in the whole world of royalty, it is a completely different mindset than the way of the rest of the world. There is a whole different culture that takes place in a royal dynasty that not even a family who is a billionaire has the same way of living. There is a deep, mystical, spiritual anointment that happens within the heirs tradition of royalty and then there are those who work and support the dynasties of royalty and they have to be of a particular quality which again isn't an ordinary quality so to speak it's a very private world it's a world that the common people really have no idea about other than there is a royal king or queen or prince or princess and they dress well and they live in big palaces and they go out to meet certain groups and organizations or countries that they have either colonized or countries or organizations that they're working together or they're trying to do things. But you see in royal families mostly pictures of them shaking hands, smiling softly, when was the last time you saw a royal member of the family have a big heartfelt laugh that was captured on camera? When was the last time you saw a member of the royal family chugging down a hamburger with their mouth wide open and their eyes bulging out? You don't. One of the things you never do is capture pictures of the royal family eating. And so it's a different culture which is connected to a deep knowing that is principle-based, committed base and serviceable base. And despite what your personal needs might be, 
those will always be sacrificed. You can't even have them. And if you have a little bit of it, that's it. You can't even get enough to fight your way through it to have it all. My next guest is an intriguing one, and I'm looking forward to having our conversation. Because while most immigrants to the United States seek better lives than what they had, author Anna Chow Pai, parents came seeking safety from the Japanese. They left a life of luxury and power to become ordinary American citizens. Anna was born in Beijing, China, and immigrated to America in 1940 fleeing the Japanese war. Her family went from being very important high-ranking officials and warlords to refugees of war and ultimately suburban life in America. Her mother was just not able to assimilate to the American culture. Going from a Manchurian princess to a suburban mom just wasn't easy for her. But Anna went on to earn a bachelor's degree in zoology from Sweetbriar College, then a master's degree in embryology from Bryn Mawr University, and she got her doctorate in genetics from the Albert Einstein College of Medicine. She taught at Montclair State University in New Jersey for 28 years and retired as a professor emerita. Now, she's the author of a new book entitled From Manchurian Princess to the American Dream, an anecdotal memoir of two immigrant lives. It gives me great pleasure to welcome our guest, Anna Chow Pai. Welcome. Thank you. It's a privilege to be on with you. How are you coping with the COVID-19 pandemic? <laughs> Pretty well, because I live in a retirement community. And, of course, we are all at the age that we're most vulnerable. So we are told to stay pretty well isolated. And that's what most of us have tried to do. Has and in fact, for you? No. <laughs> <laughs> it hasn't been that hard what I miss the most, as far as socializing is concerned, is something that we do very well here at the Pines a Retirement Community, and that is to have socializing with friends the best during meals. And right now, we are all isolated into our own unit, and food is brought to each of us so that we eat alone, and I miss the socializing while I'm eating. Just on Sunday, we had this special drive-by drishti and food pickup. I was missing everyone, and drive-by, you know what that is, but drishti Indian culture is seeing the other soul with love. So everyone to the house, and we would share loving gaze with each other and some food, and folks drove out. It was such a delight just to see everyone, to feel that sense of community. I can imagine. Let's go on and talk about you. You came over to America at the age of four, so maybe you see the world completely different, definitely, than your mother. But your oh, mother, I think so. So yeah. I would love if you could give our listeners who might not know much about Chinese history, but also if you can just give an overview of your family situation and explain why your father took your family immediately to flee from China to come to America. My father's family and my mother's family were very prominent in a part of China that was geographically about the same as New England for the United States. My mother's father was a military man who was the military assistant to my father's father because at those times that they were alive, which would be spanning the 19th century into the 20th century, 
were the times when China underwent revolution that changed it from the dynasty system with emperors and so forth to be a republic in 1911. As the children of prominent men in Manchuria, which is where my family comes from, we were well known to the Japanese who were interested in controlling Manchuria. It's very close to Japan. It's contiguous with North Korea. It's large, it's got space, it's got resources and so forth. So the Japanese were very interested in it. My grandfathers were prominent as a result of the national examinations that used to determine how prominent a man would be, all men, not women. And they were very good scholars, ended up in control of the Manchurian area of China. As time went on, the Japanese showed their interest in Manchuria. My grandfather, my mother's father, was a warlord who controlled Manchuria at that time and had to resist pressure from the Japanese. They were so interested in being able to control Manchuria that some of the Japanese on their own, not because of the Japanese government, but on their own, decided to take things into their own hands and assassinated my mother's father in 1928 when he was in control of Manchuria. So your father just felt that it was very unsafe and then said, come on, we've got to get out? My grandfather probably first started that because we have pictures where it shows my grandfather in a very formal situation surrounded with must be three dozen Japanese officials, diplomats, as well as military men surrounding him. He was the only Chinese that was in the mm-hmm. picture, both my grandfathers. It was clear that <laughs> we had to leave Manchuria, and Beijing was the place that we went to. Then as the Japanese increased their Hold on taking the, over on the of yeah. Chinese territory, it became important and obvious that we needed to leave since the Japanese knew of us. And in fact, they were the people who assassinated my grandfather knew all about family. So we had to leave Manchuria and then eventually leave Beijing, where my brothers and I were born. My father was a young man in graduate school, and we came over to the United States Actually, we came over here in 1938, and we had to go back in 1939 because my father's mother was terminally ill. And after she passed in 1940, we came back to the United States, to North Carolina. In 1938, we had come to the United States, Ithaca, New York, where my father went to his first year of a master's degree at Cornell. And then in 1940, when we came back, we came to Durham, North Carolina, because he wanted to finish his master's degree at Duke University. So this was how we came to Ithaca in 38 and to Durham, North Carolina in 40. After he got his master's degree came the time in my life when we seemed to move just about every year from one place to another. 
I don't know why we couldn't stay more than one year in a place. But as probably know from my book, I had gone to 12 different schools by the time I was ready to go to college. How do you think that impacted you? For one thing, I think it developed a rather sturdy backbone. Because in those days, there weren't that many Chinese people here in this country. And certainly during the Second World War, Orientals or Asians in general were not well received. So on top of going to a new school almost every year came the problems of being Asian. So you must have bumped into a lot of discrimination and hate? Well, I don't know if you call it the kind of hate that people think about. My brothers and I in the different schools were greeted with curiosity, really more than anything else because of the fact that there just weren't that many Asians in the United States at that time, and certainly children looked at us like we were aliens, which we probably were in their experience, people that they'd never seen before. And so the first day of school, I got used to people reacting to me like I was an alien, stopping everything they were doing with their jaws dropped. And it was that I just learned to expect. It was an interesting time. Americans weren't as exposed to information about a lot of other countries as well. That's Whatever right. Uh, we weren't until the United Nations was established was in 1945 in New right. York. Exactly. After that, it was a different world. Now, you mentioned that your mother really struggled into the American culture was it that she yes. was just missing the quality of life she had, or was it just cultural difference of the narrative, the conversations, or was it just a language issue? Or all well, you've mentioned all three things that were in effect the reason for her not being able to assimilate into this culture. For me, I always thought that it was the language that was the most important thing because she could not, therefore, feel comfortable in this country because she could never really carry on a conversation with anyone except in Chinese. Therefore, she always felt that she was not American. She always felt her own history, her family, with her father being such a prominent person in China in the early 20th century. She just didn't feel comfortable here. She did not respect Americans because she was not getting the respect that she expected. In China, she and my father were considered jet-setters. They were known in society, in high society. And then she came here, and nobody gave her the respect that she expected. It's a big change. In the opening monologue, I talked about the whole world of royalty, mm-hmm. completely different than even a billionaire. And your book is about the last way, the Manchurian princess, and just the whole thing that she felt that she was that. So she yeah. comes and she has to wash dishes, iron clothes, take kids here and yeah, there. I don't think she even saw the inside of the kitchen before really we came right, to the United States. To America. So and she had to learn how to cook. That's right. She never cooked in China. She had so many cooks. They had cooks cook Western cuisine and cooks to cook Chinese cuisine. And at any time 
of the day or night, she used to tell us. If she wanted some particular dish, all she had to do was call the kitchen, wake up the cook, <laughs> and wow. demand that certain dishes be cooked. And they Lord, were. That's a big shift. That's a humbling experience. So the book, From Manchurian Princess to the American Dream, which has a lot of beautiful photographs. Could you share what was the reason for you to put this book together? Yes, it started out as simply a family memoir because it occurred to me once my parents passed that my husband and my generation was the last, probably, to have a direct connection with China and the Chinese culture. My children were born in this country. I wanted them to know about their history, not because it was something that they should pride themselves on or express how great they were or how great the family was, because really nobody here cares, (laughs) and neither should they. But I wanted my sons to care. I wanted my sons to know what I felt about my parents and the history of the family. So I decided to write just an informal, almost long essay kind of thing for my children. And then I moved with my husband to the Pines, this retirement community. And karma led us to be direct neighbors with two retired professors of English, one of whom loved China, went to China on three sabbaticals. When he found out about our family, because my husband had written a book focusing on his father, who was probably equivalent to General MacArthur for our country. That was his father's position in China after China became a republic. So he had written a brief biography of his father, to inform our sons about his position in modern Chinese history. Well, when my neighbor heard about this, he was just avid about the idea that we should continue to write about our families in the way that the general American public could take advantage of it. He was right. Because talking to my friends here, especially during mealtimes, we got so many invitations to have dinner, and there was just no question about what they wanted to learn about. What was our background? Tell them something about Chinese history and Chinese culture and so forth. It was the kind of thing that spurred me on to write this memoir for my sons. There's a part of the book I want to get into. There's a funny story you tell in the book about when you went back to teaching full-time, and the school secretary would gesture at the doorway that you had a call from home, but it was your son, Mike. (laughs) Could you just share with our listeners about that story? Well, I was lecturing to a class at the time, and at that point, when I first started teaching again, my youngest son, Mike, was four years old, five years old, and I said to the department secretary, only when my son's call did I want to be interrupted during any class. And (laughs) this one day... My son called, and the secretary came to the window of my classroom door and gestured to me. So I ran back to the office and got the phone, and he asked if he could have a glass of water. So I said to him, "Uh, honey, I'm working right now. 
So if you need something like a glass of water, ask Dina. Dina was our live-in housekeeper, so he knew her. But my son just wanted to talk to his mother. And I said, I can't talk to you right now, but in a little while I'll call and talk to you. So I went back and I said to him, Mike, call me if you have a problem, but don't call me for something like water. You can always ask Dina. So I went back to the room, and the next thing I know, (laughs) the secretary's back at the door. At this point, my class started to laugh because I explained to them what was going on. And I went back to the telephone, and I said, Mike, what do you want now? And he said, Mom, what's the problem? And I thought, oh, my gosh, that's a word that I normally don't say to him. So he didn't know what I meant by, if you have a problem, call me. (laughs) He didn't know the meaning of the word problem. Isn't that beautiful, though? (laughs) Well, I just thought, gosh, what a smart little kid. (laughs) You were on a TV game show. You want to talk about what that experience was like? You're super smart, aren't you? No, I'm not. <laughs> I don't know how I got through tonight. I didn't expect to win past the first game. This was a program called Concentration. It was on for several years. And Hugh Downs was the host. What it was was that you had two competitors, and they were to guess what a puzzle that had been made into several jigsaw puzzles. Whoever guessed first would win the game. As you are guessing, there are prizes that come up in the puzzle. So I was watching this program because at the time I had my second child, it was a baby, and I was breastfeeding him. And while I was feeding him, I would put on this program at one point in the morning or afternoon, I don't even remember, And my other son, who was just 15 months older than the baby, would watch it because they liked to see the different parts of the puzzle. He liked to see the different parts turning. So I just put it on so that he would be occupied. And at the time, I had a young woman, Spanish woman, helping me out. We would sit there and try and figure out what the puzzles were saying. She was very impressed with me, of course, because being Spanish, she didn't know as much English as I did at that point. I wasn't working. I had finished my graduate work and had the two small children. And I would sit there and guess puzzle. And I guess I'm pretty good at that because she said at one point, why don't you go on this program? Maybe you can win some things. I said, Never have done that before, and I'm not interested in it. It would scare me to death to do it. But she insisted on it, and she kept saying it to the point where she convinced me I could do it. And I went into New York City and got on, and the next thing I knew I was on my 10th game, and had I won it, I would have come back in the fall. This was in the spring. I would have come back in the fall. How much money did you win? Do you remember? Oh, gosh, no, but it was a problem because both David and I had just finished our graduate work, and we didn't have very much money. So paying taxes was a problem for me. But apparently there was some way where we could spread out the winnings that I made. I think I made something like $30,000. A lot of money. We had a lot of taxes. As you look at your life now, here you are, 
seen a lot, you have experienced a lot, you have settled, you are in the midst of the pandemic, like all of us, what would you say has been the greatest life lesson that you have learned? The greatest life lesson for me, my own development, that regardless of how different I am from other people, having grown up in this country as an Asian, obviously I'm different from Americans or Europeans, that I still have to be myself. And that by being myself, if I am accepted, fine. If I'm not accepted, that's fine too. I just have to be myself. This is something that I was very intent on convincing my children to live that way also as they grew up. But by the time they grew up, of course, acceptance of foreigners was a lot easier. Yes, of course. Are you planning to do any book tours or book signings? Have you been doing any virtual book signings? Oh, I've done several book signings already. And it's not something that I really enjoy very much, but the groups, the people that mean something to me, which is my friends here and my friends from where we lived in New Jersey for 42 years, and also at my alma mater, Sweetbriar College. I've had book signings at all these Mm -hmm. places. It's meant a lot to me. Beautiful. Glad to hear that. Anna, I have loved your story. I'm looking forward to keeping up with you to learn more as the days move on. Are there any final thoughts that you'd like to leave our listeners with today? You're listening to a very, very lucky person, a very, very lucky immigrant for whom growing up in this country was never a real problem because of the fact that my father was able to support the family as a simultaneous interpreter for the United Nations. And although my mother was difficult to get along with, we all knew that regardless of what distractions she presented us with, she loved us, as did my father. So it's been a very lucky life. It's been a very, very lucky life. I have friends that I would die for, and I don't know why anybody would need any more than that. Well, beautiful. What a great way to end our conversation. Anna Chow Pai, thank you so much. Be safe, and hopefully we will connect again into the future. I would look forward to that. Thank you. All right. All the best. Stay very safe. I will, and you too. Thank you. So our journey continues You can go through so much, and you can hear from Anna, she's settled into herself. So despite even all the challenges that we might endure along the way, you still have that opportunity to settle. Her mom couldn't let go of the past, and Anna came in as a four-year-old, and she was looking forward ahead. And I think that's what we need to do during this pandemic. Don't go back into how it used to be. Let's move into what it needs to be and bring the best of who we are forward. I hope you've enjoyed my chit-chat with Anna Pai, and if you want more information, please contact her at frommanchurianprincesstotheamericandream.com. You can get a copy of her book. I heard it's a really great read. Remember, no one can take away your happiness unless you give them permission, and we really are here to love each other the same. Remember to pause every hour in the hour for your traffic control and generate peace on the planet. Here is the road traveled by Lucinda Drayton.
Take care, everyone.
I'm Sister Jenna. You've been listening to America Meditating Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Did you enjoy that conversation? Because you can also listen to it on Spotify or on iTunes, 24-7, anytime, anywhere. I do trust we all have inner power to become our very best. When we listen with curiosity to learn more, we grow. So thanks so much for tuning in, and do be easy on yourself. Take care.